So Money episode 1519, Samara Bay, author of Permission to Speak, How to Change What Power Sounds Like, starting with you. You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru, Farnoosh Karabi. Each day, get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money. Public speaking. Quote, unquote, this awkward, I think, old-timey phrase. Public speaking. Is set up in all of our minds because of the culture we live in as something that's Mm fear-based. We're supposed to hate it. It's supposed to make our nervous system go wild. And we're supposed to wish that we were in the casket rather than giving the eulogy. Oh my God. And my offer is, what if with just a little mischievous twinkle, what if you decide that public speaking is love-based instead, that you get to talk about what you care about in a way that makes the care potentially spread? Welcome to So Money, everybody. I'm Farnoosh Tarabi. Have you ever been told to change the sound or the tone of your voice? Voice bias is a real thing in our society, and it oftentimes encourages us to conform the way that we speak in order to get the power, the money, the job, the opportunities that we seek. But that's no way to live. Samara Bay is here. She's a speech coach to the stars and author of Permission to Speak, How to Change What Power Sounds Like, Starting With You. As Samara writes, for women, people of color, immigrants, and queer folks, there's often a dissonance between how you speak and how we collectively think powerful people should speak, like the wealthy white men who've historically been in charge. But she says the sound of power is changing. Her book is a toolkit for making that change. Samara and I have a really good discussion on how to use your voice to get what you want, how to create a new definition of what power sounds like, and how to strike the right balance of strength and warmth to land your message. Here's Samara Bay. Samara Bay, welcome to So Money. Congratulations on your new book, Permission to Speak, How to Change What Power Sounds Like, starting with you. I love this message. Thank you for writing this book. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Your book is, it talks about so many things. The centerpiece, the theme is really the voice and how to source your power from how you sound naturally. And we go through life so often being told that we don't sound the part. We don't sound the part. We need to change our voice. We're too high pitched. We're too low pitched. We talk too fast. We talk too slow. Get rid of the ums. What is this up talk or up speech or vocal fry, which kind of is a modern um, slam. Uh, I think that maybe reality TV and then there was like the Valley Girl. Remember that? So needless to say, there's a whole department of quote unquote bad talk, bad speech, bad ways of voicing. Your profession, your career is helping everyone from actors and artists to orators to help develop their natural voice so they can rise to the occasion. How do you do this in a world that is so upset and so unprepared and unhappy with how everybody sounds? And oh my gosh. By the way, how are we supposed to sound, right? It's, we're all supposed to sound like <laughs> white, white 
educated men crazy. Like alpha men, not even men, right? Because right. if any alpha man is men. listening to this who fits into that category, they may also be thinking, eh, but I've secretly had doubts about my own voice and how I show up in public. So part of my way into all of this is realizing that even when working with movie stars, because I have this background coaching actors in Hollywood on accents, even when working with movie stars who we would think of as the most, you know, quote unquote, successful, but also quite honestly, confident people out there, the voice is nonetheless a site for insecurity for literally everyone. Mm. And that when I realized that because of my, you know, sort of rarefied position coaching both them and then also popping in and working with, you know, CEOs of billion dollar companies, I'm like, okay, something's going on here because when it's this universal, but everybody thinks they're alone, obviously, yeah. as you say, there's cultural stories. I love what you said. There's bad talk. There's just bad talk. There's bad, bad talk. talk. And it's, it become obviously internalized for most of us. So it, it becomes instead shoulds rattling around in our mind when each of us has the chance to get up and speak. Well, it's just so horrible. It's like telling someone, I don't like the way you laugh or I don't like the way you walk or I don't like the way your nose looks. Okay. First of all, um, talk about vulnerability, talk about, I can't change this, you know, and right. now you're telling me that this is going to be a barrier for me. Where, how did it all begin that we associate strength and power to this alpha patriarchal tone? I mean, we live in the um, uh, white supremacist patriarchal society. Wait, I think that might be how it started. <laughs> I mean, I jumped back and did some really specific research. There's this woman in the UK who's um, really celebrated uh, named Dr. Mary Beard, who's written a book called Women in Power. And uh, she's a classicist. So she actually studies ancient texts and sees the ways in which the themes that were um, read then live in us now. And the ways in which we can sort of cast that aside and be like, oh, that's so old tiny. No, 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 no. Right. It lingers. The stories of our society's origins linger in us every time each of us listens to somebody on a stage and decides whether to take them seriously or not. Mm -hmm. And sometimes ourselves. You have been told to change the sound and tone of your voice uh, at least once. I have many times as mm -hmm. someone who was in pursuit of a job on television and giving, um, you know, newscasts and all that. I had a boss tell me once, you know, stop saying shoulda and coulda. You sound like a kid. You sound like you're uncertain. Ums. Even to this day, I'll admit, I go back into the podcast and get rid of some of my ums and awkward pauses, mostly because I just want to make it a faster experience for the listener. Mm -hmm. um, people already play the podcast on one and a half speed. So <laughs> I just want to, it's more for like them where they are. I mean, where they are. If you meet me in real life, I don't sound very, I don't sound exactly like I sound on the podcast because I'm not so polished in real life, but even like the newscast, right? You have to sort of take on that Walter Cronkite in the beginning, I'm talking, I'm dating myself, but back in the day, it was about sort of this, like I had a, uh, a guy I was dating one day. He was like, can you do that? Can you say, can you read this menu in your newscaster voice? It was a joke, but it wasn't. It was like, there's yeah. a voice that I reserve yes. for when the cameras are on. It's crazy. These are social norms inside of any of our industries. And certainly the ones that are public facing, there is this just age old, I mean, age old going back to the Greeks, but also age old, meaning a hundred years since radio was a thing. And then, right, you know, right. talkies, there is this age old sense of what a polished, sophisticated, elite 
voice sounds like. And, you know, the BBC in the 1920s decided, the BBC in England, you know, decided like this is what, um, you know, the Queen's English is. So this should be the standard here. And the U.S. didn't have that. And then... Oh my God, the talkies came out and all of these actors started talking and that voice that we associate with that time period. Yeah. <laughs> and that was a made up accent, right? I mean, it was very much a um, drawing bits and pieces, cherry picking from what was already considered like a prep school fancy, a prestige accent, but it was codified in a way that was deliberately meant to be an answer to the BBC. Oh, 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 we Americans, we Yanks, we can have a standard too, CC. And if you don't meet that standard... You don't deserve to be heard. And so this is the ways in which, you know, I'm not kidding. Obviously, when I say that there's a white supremacist patriarchal element to this, there are ways in which standards, which are, by the way, absolutely arbitrary, are codified. And then we are judged against those standards. And who do they help? Well, obviously, the people who codified it. Mm. So this is a huge problem. And (laughs) (laughs) I mean, just to name it, I call these voice biases. Right. So in the list of biases that all of us are are really grappling with in 2023, right? And in in our, for many of us, corporate institutions, right, through DEI work, there is this other invisible bias called voice bias that linguists know all about, but inside of academic institutions is one thing. And I'm, I'm happy to bring it mainstream and just ask all of us to start to notice the ways in which we're accidentally categorizing who we should take seriously and who we shouldn't. Right, right. So in this world where there are voice biases, and it can sometimes mean the difference between getting the job or not getting the job, getting the money or not getting the money, getting the opportunity or not, how do you navigate that? Because um, in an ideal world, I'd say embrace you, be you, up talk your way, however, which way, up, down, left, right, do you. But we have to also reconcile that with the reality of the world. What's your advice for someone who is navigating an environment that isn't patient, that has these biases? Yeah. So this is the real meat of it. And I'm a coach first and foremost. So I think in terms of what is responsible coaching, what works and what's practical. So yeah, it is not my job. It's irresponsible to go around saying, just be yourself, embrace yourself, right? Because at the end of the day, who does that help? The people who naturally hew to those standards and not the people who don't, which is all the rest of us, right? And I'm looking right at women, people of color, queer folks, anybody for whom uh, English is their second language, or they have any accent that you know, if you're listening, that on some level in your bones feels different. And for all of us, I just named, right, we're the ones who have to grapple with, well, okay, what do I want out of any given day? If what I want is a true sense of integrity all the way through, that I am not negotiating away any aspect of my identity, okay, well, then certain rooms just aren't going to get us. And we are not going to get that job. And we're not going to get that money. And we're not going to get that power in that room. There's another way of dealing with this, which is what, what is negotiable? What am I willing to sort of play the part on today in order to get a little more power, a little more privilege, a little more position, and then spend it really wisely tomorrow to help the next generation. And, you know, I like to say that there's really no shame in either one of those, but knowing what you want on any given day will help in terms of what Mm -hmm. your actual goals are vocally. And then there's another part of this, which is what we're talking about is the kind of day-to-day negotiations of uh, what version of ourself comes out in the room we're in. And, And then there's this other thing, which is what I'm really interested in, which is what do we do in those big moments? 
when we have the chance to give that talk or look into that camera and talk about what matters to us or pitch our take or pitch our product to those VCs who are actually secretly desperate for something that feels purpose-driven. And those are the moments when it's not about the mundanity of office politics, but rather what does leadership sound like in the future and how can we choose to embody that by bringing more of ourselves into those moments? Because to me, that's really what's at stake here. What do we want leadership to sound like in the future and what can we do today to help tell that story? Have you ever, this, that was so well said, and I, I am so here for all of that. I still wonder about sometimes I'm thinking like extremes. Okay. If you have somebody who is like, if you're going into that room of VC investors and you are, first of all, a woman, which immediately you're (laughs) good luck, good luck. But on top of that, maybe you don't have the right, quote unquote, the right, quote unquote, voice. You're not, Mm -hmm. you're distracting to them. Because because of what, what is the best way to put it? I yes, don't know what else. I'm at a loss for words. They're like, I can't, no, this I, is how do I articulate bias with voice? I don't know. Yeah, but yeah. Do you call it out? And you have a consciousness of this. Do you address it? How? What do you do? What do you do? Because now you're you're setting yourself behind even more because one, you came in as a woman, and that doesn't help give you points. And then number two, you have like maybe um a, a sort of a laugh out of the room kind of voice because of your audience. Yeah. I have two answers. One is about how you prep before that so that you have the likelihood of bringing your most powerful self into that space. Because of course, what we think about how we prime ourselves in advance of those moments makes a big difference. And we can prime ourselves by thinking they're going to laugh me out of the room. And that does not do well. I mean, literally MRI machines will tell you what that does to your brain. It's not helpful. So some of it really is about how each of us individually taps into this sort of collective um, a moment I think we're in, a movement almost, one might say, around permission to speak. There's a real sense, not just my book, but there's a real sense, I think, culturally of my sisters, my friends who aren't in this room with me are in this room with me and they have my their hand on my back and I'm going to show up like the version of me I love around my friends and we will see what kind of an impact I can make when I'm that emotionally available. So some of it is really about how we choose to, you know, mindset our way into those spaces. And then the second, which is practical and I think what you're getting at, is do we or don't we name the bias in the space? It can feel a little scary. It certainly helps to have like, you know, HR or someone in there to do it for you. But the reality is that's not often what's happening. And I like to say, someone asked me recently, I think this feels a little bit lower, um, uh, less loaded. So I'll, I'll give this as an example. Somebody asked me recently, um, I have a stutter. It doesn't come out very often. So they're mm-hmm. not going to know until they know. Should I name it up top? Oh, and I said, first of all, let me say, first of all, it is so, so personal. Like, thank you for asking me, but also you may know it deep in your you know, soul what the answer is without asking me. But since you're asking me, I'll say this. Naming true things helps with connection. Ignoring true things makes for disconnection. Hmm. That goes for like if a loud noise happens in the middle of your talk, right? If you ignore it and pretend it's not there, oops. Suddenly the audience is like, is she real up there? What is, wait, are you a person? Do we, are we all personing together? So name the true thing. So if you know for sure that your voice is going to affect them, or if you even want to play with it as a 
I don't know, as a sort of a weird little brave act, a mischievous act, you can say, you know, I have been told I come across a little girly, a little naive, and I'd like you to know it's just the sound of my voice. And you may be having all kinds of accidental assumptions that you're making based on that. But if you wouldn't mind putting them aside for a moment, I think I've got something here you really want to know about. Yes. Yeah, that's, that's, I, I love that. I love that. So then um, your book is about giving power to your speech, to your voice. How do you center your own joy? Um, and as you are speaking and, and do that and be powerful in spite of these biases, like, is there like a four-step program? (laughs) (laughs) You know, there sort of is, but I feel like with your, with your very speedy and, and, um, and beautifully, um, you know, quick. Is there a shortcut? Yeah. Is there a shortcut? Um, there's this book that just came out called Permission to Speak. It's a great shortcut. Uh, it comes out in audio as well. Um, yeah, you know, here's my thought. It's even quicker than that. It's even quicker than reading a book or a four-step program. If what you're talking about is how to bring a little bit more joy, I call it inner squirrely. It's like a little, a little mystery, a little twinkle in the eye. Yeah. Hey. It's like some, right? Like just remembering that um, no matter how rough this room is that we're about to head into, how potentially hostile or, you know, inscrutable the faces will be, we are walking into that room for something having to do with something that will make our life better, right? Like, a yes in that room will improve our life. It'll improve our kid's life. It'll improve our parents' life. It'll improve our friend's life. Like, oh my God, the potential for delight. So, and the question is, how do you think about that ahead of time? And some of it is the prep work. Honestly, if you want five minutes, samarbay.com slash goodies. You guys, I have a free five-minute warm-up. It's literally what I do before I go onto a microphone to set okay. myself up for the most permission version of myself possible. But I have one other thought too, which is public speaking, quote unquote, this awkward, I think, old tiny phrase, public speaking is set up in all of our minds because of the culture we live in as something that's Mm fear-based. We're supposed to hate it. It's supposed to make our nervous system go wild. And we're supposed to wish that we were in the casket rather than giving the eulogy. Oh my God. And my offer is, what if with just a little mischievous twinkle, what if you decide that public speaking is love-based instead, that you get to talk about what you care about in a way that makes the care potentially spread. Hmm. What if? So what you're saying is, because I'm writing a book about fear and I just stole that line now, like what if we just were patient with these fears and didn't think that they were out to get us, but that there is wisdom. So when you're having a moment of trepidation around speaking, what is, if you took a minute to sort of lean into that and say, what is it that I'm actually after here? What is the goal? Yeah. What is this yeah. fear saying that I need to protect? I think sure. that it's saying you need to protect your, your joy, your success, the way you measure success, not how someone else is measuring mm. success, but go out there and give the speech, but go with these these goals in mind that the, 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 the use this fear to protect these goals as opposed to trying to change your voice. 
It's about oh, yeah. trying oh, for to sure. Well, I mean, this is the idea of being the new sound of power, right? That actually yeah. how we sound when we are on our voice, when we are actually connected to our sense of what matters to us. That is, that's what if that's what power sounded like instead of the 2000 year old story? Yeah. Because also for all of you, for all of us, think about who you like to listen to, for right. whom included. Who do you invite into this intimate space in your ear? Who do you watch a one minute um, speech of, whether they're an actor, you know, winning an award or an activist or a politician, and you feel the physical, I don't mean intellectual, the visceral urge to share it. Right. They are our lighthouses, not that old sound of power. Mm-hmm. And every mm-hmm. one of those people who might come up as you start to think about whose voice do I actually lean into and love, and of course it's content, but it's also how they talk, right? Each one of them is an example of the new sound of power and is an example of what we can do when we step into that VC room. Mm-hmm. And and to bring it to life more, Samara, like what are they doing in effectively that is allowing, that is giving us such, that's, that's pulling us to them. So mm-hmm. their voices maybe not conventional or the sort of patriarchal tone. Like you're and, literally yeah. hearing pitch that's higher and you're yeah, like for variation example, and you're hearing an accent. Exactly. Yes. An accent or um, I'm trying to think of some of the, you know, there's so many people I love to watch that have um, very unique sounding voices. I like to say, for example, two examples that come to mind that offer, I think, a little variety. I like to think of AOC and I like to think of Esther Perel. Aha, uh-huh, Yes. Right. I mean, there's also, I mean, Cory Booker, when he gave that, um, that like loving speech to Katanji, um, Brown Jackson, when she was, uh, in the confirmation. Yes. So when we think about those moments or when we think about those, um, speakers, what's happening on a practical, practical level, right? Some of it is accent, as we said, et cetera, but some of it is they are willing to be emotionally available in a way that takes work. It doesn't happen naturally. For most of us, we have years, decades of practice hiding when we actually care about something because it is vulnerable. That's literally what vulnerable means. You are showing what matters to you so people can hurt you. But also it's the only way we make the biggest impact to show, to not just say this matters to me, but to show it. And how do you show it vocally? You allow the emotional content of what you're saying to be totally obvious. Mm hmm. And that will make your pitch variation more up and downy rather than caught in your throat on a practical level. And that codes for vulnerability. You know, when we get caught in our throat, it's usually called monotone or even vocal fry. We end Mm -hmm. up sounding like this. And when we sound like this, what we're saying is I'm here, but like, I'm also kind of not here and I'm in a protective mode. And protection makes sense, right? No shame. But those moments when we really want to make an impact, we, we cannot be in protective mode. We must be willing to share. Mm. And for the record, the vocal fry phenomenon that I think was uh, sourced from, I don't know, I I read a New York Times article about it. I mean, come on, are we writing articles (laughs) about this now? Yeah, but it was like about the the Kardashians and Mm -hmm. some of the folks on, and I'm like, P.S., they are laughing their way, they're vocal frying their way to the bank. Okay, so can we stop picking them apart like this, you know, like there's many things you can take to edit. You can have it. You can, there are many issues maybe that you can have with certain celebrities, but like, let's not be the voice. (laughs) 
It's low-hanging fruit. You're totally right. And there is a generational element to this, right? Who really hates people who speak with vocal fry? Not the people themselves, but the vocal fry habit. Who who really hates that? Well, I'll tell you this. Everyone I've met who's my mom's generation in the 70s. Oh, my God, you're writing a book on speaking. Thank God girls these days really need to save themselves from themselves. I heard it over and over and, wow. and over. Right, because they don't have it because it, you know, it's generational and we sound it's like our friends. As well, I like to say, it, we sound like a the lot people of this- we love. So like, can we take a second and actually celebrate that? Sorry, what were I you think saying? this I also excited. yes, but but <laughs> I think this also speaks to we don't do well with difference and change. We as a as a as a species, like we just don't like things that are different than us. And we take I also find that, you know, when you ask like who's criticizing these women, it's often other women. We can be our biggest critics. Um, we wouldn't necessarily identify vocal fry in a man and say, ah, I don't like that, but we would in a woman. So what does that also say about the uh, the culture around voice bias? I mean, I think you just said it, right? Just even sitting with that truth and how, look, we don't hold ourselves outside of that realm of who we're judging because ask anyone how they feel about their own voice and really, really dark, complicated things come up, including the phrase, maybe not for everyone listening, but for one of your friends, if not you, I hate the sound of my voice. It is so normal that to say I don't hate the sound of my voice is actually the anomaly. So right. we're including ourselves in that list of people we're judging. And to what end? Like, what is that costing us financially right. and in terms of right. jo- joy and delight? You know, I just went back and watched a video of myself from 2008. So 15 years ago. I mean, can we also talk about when you get older, your voice changes and when you're younger, your voice is different. <laughs> and and I couldn't believe anyone took me seriously back then because I was young, but I was also, I also sounded young. And I also remember, you know, on top of that, applying for an anchor position and the news manager saying that I'd look like a schoolgirl because I wasn't wearing, you know, padded shoulder blazers yep. and I had my glasses on. She didn't like that. She's like, please go buy yourself some blazers, no more cardigans. And so it's just, it's all part and parcel to this, um, to the stereotypical image that we want to, we want to be persisted. And it's cause it's comfortable to the, to us. It's, uh, it's safe. It feels safer when you're doing the, the, the quote status unquote, quo. normal status quo thing. It's, it's gross. I left that room in tears. I went to Zara and I bought those blazers, but I did it with a lot of tears. Yeah. Yeah. This is why uh, having a moment where we catch ourselves and go, is it me or is it society? And do I have the support, the little bit of power, a little bit of privilege, whatever, to actually plant my flag and say, right here, right now, in little ways that bring me joy, I am going to upend the status quo. And I know that when I step out, for example, for me right now, right, when I step out and do a podcast and I sound like me and I do not work not to sound like me and y'all are hearing me, right? I sometimes sound young and 
say like a lot and I sometimes stand in my power and take pauses because I know I'm saying something big and important. And they are all me. That is how I sound in public. And I'm modeling it on purpose and it brings me delight. And I'm so loving spending time with you and I'm breathing that in and feeling it right. When we choose to do this, to bring the full range of human experience to a public moment, despite the eons of stories that say the public is only for a certain type of person and a certain sound, we are being radical and revolutionaries, even when all we're doing is having a bleep it out conversation. Yeah. And how accessible is that? Everyone's got a voice. Everyone's got a voice. Except when you don't, because you lost your voice and I lost my voice at one point. You lost your voice for many months. Well, but when we lose our voice, it's because of, you know, yes, it's because of the, as I like to say, we're all functioning members of a dysfunctional society, right? Mm -hmm. So where are the trade-offs? In what ways have we taken on the societal dysfunction? What was your story? Tell me this. Oh, when I lost my voice? I will tell you, it was 2000 (laughs) and I want to say 16, I was doing this podcast for about a year. And at that point I was doing it almost every day. So now it's a three day a week show, but it started out Samara as seven days per week. Then I went to five and now we're at three. So imagine all those interviews, all of those conversations back to back, plus living your own life and talking in your own personal life. My voice just gave up and it was about a week until I got my voice back. Not a huge problem. I ran reruns, I think, or I had enough podcasts in the can to run them, but it was, it was actually kind of nice to not, to rest the voice for a little bit, but it also scary because it was like, when is this going to come back? You really take your voice for granted. Yes, you do. Did it teach you anything? I mean, I guess the question is, did you do anything differently afterwards? I think I took the podcast from seven days a week to five days. That was it? That was it. Well, I wasn't really, um, I don't think that I, at that point, because I, at that point, I think I had learned a lot of my lessons about the, the challenges, the blowups that come with trying to an, have an artificial voice and be mm. someone that you're not. And so the podcast for me was a way to feel very much myself. You know, I just, I just finished a conversation with someone else on the show about figuring out the internet, you know, and I, I had, I just didn't really want to be someone who had courses and was doing promos on all the time every day on social media. But I thought, well, a podcast is kind of internet adjacent. So that's going to be my internet thing. I can be in my pajamas, just use my voice. Don't need to use my face. Don't need to use my feet. Don't need to use my hands and do this thing. And it's sustained me for eight plus years. I think I was onto something. I think because I just made it easy. I was like, what's the easiest thing? What's easier than just using your voice? I mean, it took me a while to get to that point, to that realization, but then it happened and it paid off. I'm still stuck on you not using your feet as though that's like a major benefit, but maybe it is. I mean, I, uh, I don't have to, I mean, maybe I'll start doing this podcast on a treadmill because I really Ooh, feel yeah, like- yeah, yeah. Or on a <laughs> run and like we hear you, my, my heavy hips. breathing. <clears throat> yeah. Well, listen, I similarly had a moment of voice loss, as you suggest. Um, For me, it happened in my 20s and it was months in the making and I felt it coming on and was sort of trying to ignore the pain. For me, there was a real pain element and, um, and it just felt really existential. Like I would have these late nights of 
what is my voice trying to tell me as I, mm-hmm. you know, shut down from society. And I was in this acting graduate program. So of course I dropped out of the play. I dropped out of singing. I dropped out of talking to people and I would show up in class like a ghost. Uh, and then for me, the major aha that in a way turned into this book 20 years later was that the day that I got diagnosed with vocal nodules and the guy, the ENT stuck a you know tiny scope for anyone who's experienced this. You don't forget this feeling. A tiny little camera up my nose and down the back of my throat and took Oof. a photo of my vocal cords. It's not painful. It's just odd. Anyway, I got this picture back. I got the diagnosis and I got back to class. I had missed the morning session and I had this experience of all eyes turning on me as I walked back into class and the guy who ran the whole program stopped everything and said, so what's the diagnosis? And I said, as audibly as I possibly could through these like, you know, extremely inflamed vocal cords, vocal nodules, I have to go on vocal rest. And he said, ha, just as I thought, bad usage, which actually stuck with me way longer than the actual problem did. I went to a speech pathologist. I literally relearned how to talk. It turned out I'd been speaking habitually a tiny bit lower than my body's ideal pitch. And I had to figure out how to speak a little higher and allow the sort of ego jolt that happens when we hear ourselves talking a little differently. I had to deal with that and it took a few weeks. But the shame from that bad usage moment outlasted the actual problem by years. And it rattled around in there. And I was just like, why? Why did I do this to Mm -hmm. myself? Why did I sabotage myself? And that was the part where I wish Mm -hmm. I had the book I've written now and I just didn't put it together until I finished the book. And then I was like, oh, that's what's happening here. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Because the reality is when any of us get told, you'll be taken seriously if you stop saying like, if you lower your voice, if you do this, if you do this, we are left with two things. One, the practicals of how do I fix that? And two, this more existential question with often a bit of shame around it of why am I doing this to myself? So I like to bring in, and I, I realize we're probably at time, so maybe this is a good ending. I don't know. But I like to bring in that linguists will say that every one of the vocal habits any of us have picked up, we have picked up for a reason. It has served us in some way. Those hedgings, the, the likes and the or whatevers, they soften our speech when softening, mm-hmm. in fact, helps us get what we want. And right. until maybe that day it right. doesn't. Until maybe that day it doesn't. And that's mm-hmm. the interesting inflection point. And in defense of ums, I will end on this. I read that or I saw it on Instagram or someone was talking about, maybe it was a linguist, that when you say, um, your brain needs a break sometimes when you're talking or your brain, you talk sometimes faster than your brain is, is, is thinking. And so it's actually helpful. It's a mechanism that helps you to clarify and make more clear your thoughts because you're giving yourself that opportunity to pause and me, it comes out as an, um, whatever. Sometimes you don't say, um, or you say, uh, or, but it's not because you're bad at talking. It's because your brain is doing what it naturally does, which is it like it's processing. And so permission to use, um, is okay. Permission to use them. Well, and also Farnoosh, you know, who else needs time to process your listener and yes. um, and an, uh, is a gift. Yes. It is a generous act that our body naturally does to say, I'm going to catch up to myself 
give me a moment, but you need it too. Yes. Yes. Oh my God. So many permissions. Thank you. Thank you, Samara Bay. Your book is called Permission to Speak. Tell us the link for the goodies. I, I need that. My website is samarabay.com. It's just my name slash goodies. It's a little secret link that you're all getting, but it's just a five minute warm up. And seriously, it's people are always like, but what's your tips? But what's your tips? I'm like, just do a quick warm up. And it's not what you expect. You know, it's a little bit of breathing stuff, but it's a little bit of mindset stuff because we really have access to huge amounts of power and permission inside of us. But how do we get there quickly? You know? Thank you. We'll put that link in our show notes. Congrats again. Thank you. Thanks again to Samara. Her book is Permission to Speak. The link is in our show notes and be sure to stay tuned for Friday's episode. And if you have any money questions, career questions, send them my way. Farnoosh at somoneypodcast.com. You can also direct message me on Instagram. You can also go to the website, somoneypodcast.com and click on Ask Farnoosh. I'll see you back here in a couple of days. I hope your day is so money. <laughs>